So about uh, two years ago, it was around Christmas time, and just coming up on Advent season, and I came home one day whining to Kim, and I said, you know, um, I, I've been preaching now for, what, 15, 16, 17 years, and, and, I, and I, for the life of me, I, I can't think of what to say at Christmas anymore. Like, I've said it all. Like, I've gone through all the infancy narratives, talking about Jesus and the birth. I mean, focus on the star, the shepherds, the magi, the manger, even the animals. Like, what more can I focus on? And wives are amazing, because Kim didn't even bat an eyelash. She said, you know what, you've never really talked about the angel appearances in the uh, birth narratives. I said, the angel appearances? Like, how many of those are there? She goes, well, I don't know. There's at least Mary and Joseph and, and, uh, and Zechariah and other ones. And I thought, that, that's actually a good idea, Kim. And, and so I, uh, I went in kind of a study mode and, and discovered that there's five angel appearances in the uh, New Testament, just around the infancy narratives. And so I put together a little study uh, called Angels We Have Heard. Not angels we have heard of on high, but angels we have heard. The fact that the angels have spoken at Christmas time, And there's a lot of life in the words of the angels. So what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks here at Scottsdale Bible is look at two of them. And then maybe next year we'll look at the other three. But I think this will do more than enough to get us set up for what this season is all about, all right? So uh, today we're going to look, well, you'll get the picture in a minute. Why don't we pray? And, uh, and then we're going to dive right in. Father, I thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Uh, it is so clear to us that, uh, that at Christmas time, when you sent Jesus into this world, that it was the, the epitome, the height, the summit of your grace in history. And uh, you did something for us we couldn't do for ourselves. And that is you dealt with our sin problem. You brought us to you with that vast distance that we sensed from you. And so, God, we pray that as we focus now on a, on a part of that Christmas story, that you would give us wisdom. And Lord, more than anything, give us courage to live out the things that we will learn here today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you had Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life. All of you remember that movie. And John Travolta played one in the movie Michael. And then there's been hit TV series starring them, one starring Michael Landon called Highway to Heaven, and the other starring Roma Downey and Della Reese called Touched by an Angel, right? It's angels. And our 21st century world is enamored with this idea of angels. You see them on Hallmark cards, TV commercials use them now and then. We have named professional sports teams after them. If someone's good and nice, we say, oh, you're such an angel, right? If you go to Google and type in angels, it will direct you to no less than 154 million web pages that mention angels. If you go to Amazon.com and type in under their book search angels, it will lead you to 357,739 books about them. Art history is filled with pictures of angels. Some of them have wings, some have halos, some are old, some are just little babies. And if you noticed, every one of them knows how to play the harp, right? I mean, that's angels according to art. And what you need to know is that the Bible talks about angels a lot. In fact, there's 198 direct references to angels in the Bible where we learn, by the way, that they don't have wings, none of them appear as babies or children, none of them have halos, and not one of them knows how to play the harp, at least in the Bible, right? But they do do some things, and what they do is primarily speak. They are, they are messengers of God's words to people in time of need. And more than anything else, then, what I need you to see is that angels are one who bring information to God's people, information on how to know God and follow him in this fallen world. And as I mentioned before I prayed, probably the most fascinating fact about angels is that the highest concentration 
of angel appearances in the Bible, complete with important messages that affect you and I still today, was during the whole conception and birth of Jesus, what we're celebrating this time. And what theologians call the infancy narratives contain the highest concentration of angels appearing, and that would only make sense that when God came into this world, angels would get active. And so on no less than five separate occasions, angels appeared to the main players during the birth of Jesus. And each time, they had something profound and life-changing to say. And so we're going to look at two of them in order. The first one that happened and the second one that happened. First is the angel appeared to Zacharias, and then next week is the angel appeared to Mary, a story that many of us are familiar with as well. And so if you brought a Bible with you here this morning, I want you to open up right now to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to park here for the rest of our time this morning, Luke chapter 1, and I'm going to read you the entire story. It's a little long, but I'm telling you guys, this is very life-giving. Luke 1, beginning at verse 5. You ready for this? It says this. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a certain priest named Zacharias, or Zechariah in some of your translations, which is the Hebrew equivalent, of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it came about while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even yet while he's in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this for certain? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in age. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in the proper time. And the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And it came about when the days of his priestly service were ended that he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace from among men. Now, folks, there is a lot of stuff in this story here. And I've heard sermons over the years from multiple angles on a lot of things going on in this story. 
And the most obvious thing going on in this story, as we're going to see in a minute here, is the foretelling of John the Baptist coming into this world and his role in preparing the way for Jesus. But when it comes to the interplay between the angel and Zacharias, there's something that I need you to see here that happens in the life of Zacharias that I believe is critical to you and I today in our experience with God. And it's point one on your outline, and it's simply this, that we learn here that even godly people can battle big time with doubt. Did you know that? It's one of the key things that jumps off the page here to me is that even godly people can struggle big time with doubt. I think this, among other things, is one of the main takeaways from this interplay between the angel and this guy, Zacharias. And so track with me, folks, what, what's going on here. And to do this, notice with me no less than three separate movements in this story. First, notice that it makes clear that the main human player here, and this is so important to recognize, is living a very godly life. Did you pick up on that? That Zacharias and Elizabeth are like two really godly people, and Luke makes it very clear to us that this is the case. Look again at verses 5 through 7. It begins by telling us that Zacharias was a priest. A priest. I mean, that alone should perk up our ears and say, oh yeah, godly man. Because a priest in the first century Jewish culture was a very revered and godly person. I mean, out of hundreds of thousands of people living in the Holy Land at that time, there were only about 18,000 priests, and they were considered the spiritual leaders of the temple, ones who devoted their entire lives to knowing God and helping other people know God. Very similar to pastors or rabbis today, very esteemed in that culture. And notice that Zacharias was not just any priest, but he was from the division or order of Abijah, and his wife was from the lineage of Aaron. Do you see that there in verse 5? Abijah and Aaron. And what you simply need to know is that Abijah was one of 24 divisions of the priesthood dating back hundreds of years. And Aaron, as many of you know, was the very first priestly order under the Mosaic law. And so as one Bible expert says it, and I quote, he says to be a priest and to be married to a priest's daughter was a double distinction. And as if all this were not enough, if we didn't get it by now, Luke goes on to say that they were both righteous in the sight of God that word righteous is one of the oldest and most complimentary terms that you could give to a man or woman living in New Testament times. And then it says that they walk blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Which doesn't mean they were perfect. It just simply means that when it came to following the moral law at that time, these two had it. I mean, they were very righteous people. I love how one commentator wraps it up. He says they were saints of the Old Testament type. And that says it all, right? Like Old Testament saints, the ones that all of us know were like kind of creme de la creme when it comes to followers of God. That's what Luke's trying to tell us about Zacharias and Elizabeth. And because we all know that godliness doesn't mean the absence of problems and heartaches in this world, it then notes in verse 7 that one of the main struggles that this couple had was that of being childless, that they couldn't have kids. But we don't know why. We just know that they couldn't conceive a child. And now that they were older, way beyond childbearing years, that this was sort of a, a source of great heartache for them. And it's key to this story, as we're going to see. So hang on to that. And then notice the second movement of this story, what I simply call the announcement slash appearance, or the appearance slash announcement. And to understand this, notice that in verses 8 through 12 that Zacharias was chosen by Lot to be the one priest who got to enter the temple to burn incense. In other words, this was a distinction that you get chosen to do only once in a lifetime 
where out of about 18,000 priests, you were the only one chosen for a whole week to enter the holy place in the temple and offer incense each day to God. And the rest of the people, hundreds if not thousands of them, stood outside offering prayers to God. And so it tells us that Zacharias was in offering incense, incense, and at that very holy moment, all of a sudden, he was not alone, and an angel appeared next to him, standing right to where he was burning the incense. And it says in verse 12 that Zacharias was troubled, and fear gripped him. Now pause right there, because i got to ask you, who wouldn't be, Right? I mean, think about it. I have people say to me all the time, and this just irks me. They say, you know what? If God ever appeared to me, I'd ask him all these questions and settle a lot of issues. And I think to myself, no, you wouldn't. If God ever appeared to you, you'd be like everybody else in the Bible, and that's you'd fall on your face out of fear and trembling because it would so freak you out that an angel or an angel of the Lord would appear to you. I mean, Isaiah had that response. Job had that response. Jacob was probably the most bold in the Old Testament. He at least engaged in a wrestling match. But all of them had fear when it came to an angel appearance. So i got to believe that if you and I had an angel appear to us today, it wouldn't be like you see on TV. I mean, that drives me bonkers, you know. It's like, oh, isn't Clarence such a wonderfully nice guy? You know, and Michael landed in Highway to Heaven. Hogwash! That is not what happens when angels appear to people in the Bible. They get afraid. In fact, I love it. That word gripped here in the original language literally means to embrace violently. It means to be tackled and hugged by fear. That was the response of Zacharias, and let's not kid ourselves. It'd be our response, too, if it happened to us. And so in sensing this fear from Zacharias, the angel then goes on to share with him a key message in verses 13 through 17. He tells him that God has heard his prayer We assume the prayer for a child. And that Elizabeth is going to conceive, even in her old age, and have a son, and they're to name him John, which in the Hebrew means God has given grace. And in not stopping there, the angel then goes on in the next four verses to list off all the things that this son is going to be about and accomplish. And now we're getting to the core reason why the angel appeared. He first tells him that there's going to be national joy, Joy and gladness for all of the nation through this one son. Why? Because he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit. And then getting down to the nitty-gritty, it says there in verses 16 to 17 that he's going to turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, turning the hearts of the fathers to their children, the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. In other words, simply see that this son is going to have a ministry of helping people realize their sin and repent. And if you're tracking with that, you've got to say, well, well, why? I mean, prophets have been asking them to repent for thousands of years and not a lot of success in some circles, so why would this be special? Notice two things. One, it says, in the spirit and power of Elijah. It's like, whoa. You mean like the greatest prophet out of the Old Testament? The one who did have a successful track record in defeating the prophets of Baal and getting the nation to turn back to God? That Elijah? Yep, that Elijah. And really, the core of it is, and this is the second thing I need you to know, is that the angel tells Zacharias that the main purpose of all of this will be to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Look at that there in verse 17. As many of us know, the main and primary purpose of God lifting up John the Baptist to pull in this whole miracle here in the temple and then with allowing Elizabeth to be pregnant was to prepare for the coming of Jesus that John would announce his coming, ready the people through talking about sin and righteousness and repentance, and then when Jesus showed up on the scene, he would point to him 
And he'd say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he would decrease as Christ would increase. I mean, don't miss this, folks. In a very real sense, the angel is saying to Zacharias, man, your prayers have been answered. For your nation and for your wife, a son will be given, and he has an amazing purpose to play in this world, unlike any other role in the history of all creation. And folks, in what has to be one of the most unexpected turning points in any story in the Bible, after this amazing appearance and the crystal clear words of the angel announcing an answer to prayer, a birth of a son, and an incredible sign, then son who's going to play a key role in God's redemptive history of humankind, we all of a sudden confront the third movement in this story, what I call the doubt. It's the doubt. Look at what happens there in verse 18. It says, And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this for certain? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. We need to pause right now and focus on that verse. Because something is happening here in this story that's, that's kind of unexpected. Something's happening here that's very relevant for you and I living today in the 21st century, and that is that as far as I see it, Zacharias was stuck between a very common rock and hard place right here in verse 18. He was stuck between two things that many Christians get stuck between, what I would simply label the difference between knowledge and trust. Knowledge and trust. In other words, he had been given certain key information about God, what he was up to on this planet, and even how this could affect his own life. And now he had a choice of whether to trust and believe this knowledge or not. Knowledge versus trust. And even though an angel was standing right in front of him, and even though the words that he was hearing had to be music to his ears, I mean a son, and not just any son, but one who's going to play a key role in God's design, and even though he knew that angels can and should be trusted from all of his knowledge of angel appearances in the Old Testament, Zacharias was still stuck right in the middle of a very common rock and hard place between whether to trust in this knowledge about God and the world or to not trust it. It's simply the difference between knowledge and trust, knowing or hearing something, but then taking the next step to actually trust it to be so true for you and actually act upon it. I need you to see that. That's what Zacharias is struggling with. Now, many of you might not know this, back in 1859, a guy by the name of Jean Blondin became the first man to ever walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. It was at 5 o'clock in the afternoon in 1859 that he started on the American side, and made his way out across the tightrope over to the Canadian side. And because the guy was such a showman, he actually stopped halfway through and did a somersault his very first time over. And because of the success of that venture and the months and years to follow, he became kind of an unashamed performer, making the tightrope trek across Niagara Falls dozens of times. He did it blindfolded. He did it on a bicycle. He did it once cooking an omelet at the center of it. I'm serious. And he even did it with his hands and feet manacled one time. I mean, he walked across Niagara Falls dozens of times, many times doing some sort of stunt along the way. And the story is told that at one time, Blondin decided to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope carrying a wheelbarrow. And as he got to the other side, he addressed a large crowd, and he said, how many of you believe that I can walk back across the tightrope on a wheelbarrow? And as you can imagine, they all said, well, we believe, we believe. And then he asked, how many of you believe that I could make it successfully carrying someone with me in the wheelbarrow? And the crowd said, we believe, we believe. And then he said, who is going to volunteer 
And as you can imagine, nobody said, we believe. In fact, the crowd was 100% silent. Why? Because everybody and his brother knows the difference between knowledge and trust. Amen? I mean, it's one thing to say you have sure knowledge or even a modicum of assurance that somebody can walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope that you've seen do, do it dozens of times and with a wheelbarrow. It's another thing to say that you're going to be such an idiot to put yourself in that wheelbarrow, right? And then to bridge that gap and say, I'm going to trust in that. I mean, we all can relate to that. And so whether it's actually knowing that your spouse loves you, but then having to trust him or her at a key time in our marriage. You ever been there? Or whether it's actually knowing that your best friend's going to keep a confidence, but then having to share something personal and trust him or her with something of confidence. Or even, as Tim mentioned, whether it's knowing that God is 100% reliable and never lets us down, but then having to trust him when our lives and even our economy gets chaotic. We all know the difference between knowledge and trust. And this is precisely, please see this, where Zacharias is in our story. Zacharias feels himself caught between the knowledge that is right in front of him and trust. And he does something right at this moment that is catastrophic to his faith. He doubts. He doubts. It says there in verse 18, how shall I know this for certain? His logic being, I'm old, my wife's old, people like us don't have babies like ever, so how can I know your words are true? How can I bridge this gap between the knowledge that you're giving me and the trust with my life. And by the way, the answer to Zacharias's implied question here of how you bridge the gap between knowledge and trust, the Bible gives us over and over again. Have you read it? I mean, from Genesis to Revelation, it's the same answer, and it all comes down to faith. That what bridges the gap between the knowledge you have and the trust that God is looking for is for you to engage your faith. That's what God was looking for from Zacharias in that moment. That's what he's looking for from you and from me. It's not blind faith, mind you. I mean, we've got lots of revelation, lots of knowledge, most of it. It's not all of it historically rooted. I mean, we can verify it. But it's knowledge nonetheless. It becomes worthless. It's worthless to you until you act on it in faith. It's one of the key messages of the Bible. I love how Hebrews 11 says it. It says faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. And yet knowing this, Zechariah here, Zacharias here chooses doubt. He chooses to not believe, to not have faith, even though there is an angel visible right in front of him in the temple, quoting Old Testament scripture, giving him the best news he's ever going to get in his life, he still chooses doubt. And folks, i got to bring you back to something that we established earlier because we got to feel the weight of this. And that's that this is a very godly man. Do you remember that from before? That's why this is important. This is no spiritual slouch. I mean, this was a godly, righteous, faithful, and good man. I mean, this guy married a gal from Wheaton College. He pastored a really good church. I mean, this is the creme de la creme of Christians today that Luke is talking about here. And all of a sudden, we get to the point in the story, and he's doubting. I mean, he caves in on his own faith. In a crucial moment, when faith was needed the most, he doubted. And that's why I say, even godly people can battle big time with doubt. And some of you are thinking right now, well, Jamie, okay, I get that, but what's the point of that? Why is that important? Here's why it's important. Because I think that once you and I get this, this should act as an incredible comfort as well as an incredible challenge to us at, bo at, at both the same time. I mean, it should comfort some of us here who have walked with God for a long time, 
who maybe have been elders and leaders in the church, or maybe we accepted Christ in a good Christian family years ago. I mean, we're known as mature believers, and yet it's comforting to know that even mature believers can go through doubt. It's comforting to know that if Zacharias can doubt, and by the way, we'd add to the list Abraham, Moses, Gideon, Peter, Thomas. I mean, there's lots of godly men in the Bible and women who doubted. Then you and I are certainly not beyond this. And this should comfort us if and when we struggle to know that even godly people can doubt at times. And yet at the same time, please hear the balance in this. This should also challenge us. Because though doubt might be a reality in a fallen world, it is still the antithesis of faith. It is. I mean, we can't be too soft on doubt because the scriptures here are clearly telling us that it's the antithesis of faith. And the reaction of the angel here in our story, isn't it interesting, was not to say to Zacharias, ah, you're struggling with doubt. Don't worry about it. Lots of godly people in the Old Testament struggle with doubt at times. Just hang in there. You'll get over it in time. He doesn't say that. In fact, look at the response of the angel in verses 19 to 20. This is very revealing for you and I today. It says, the angels answered him and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to you to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. Fascinating, folks. There's only two angels that ever give their names in the Bible, Gabriel and Michael. And this only a few select times out of all the angel appearances in the Bible. And so when the angel says here that I'm Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, please see, he's not just giving at all some friendly introduction here. I mean, he's basically saying, do you have any idea who I am? I'm one of God's most select emissaries sent from heaven to announce the greatest thing ever to hit humankind. I'm going to be speaking to Mary next, a 15-year-old girl who will be caught unawares with a divine pregnancy, and she's going to receive my words with a Godzilla-like faith that makes yours look like Bambi. That's in the margins in the original text. That is what Zacharias heard the angel say to him. I mean, put yourself in your shoes, man. If the angel said that to you, you'd be going, oh, sorry. I mean, that's exactly what's happening here. He's saying, you don't get it. You don't get it. This is a time for you to engage your faith. And what are you doing? You're being a spiritual wimp. You're backing off. You're sliding into doubt. So the angel says, here's how it's going to work. And then he goes on to inform Zacharias that because of his lack of faith, of not moving more toward trust but more toward doubt, he's going to not be able to talk or speak for the next few months. Now let's try to make sense of that. He's not going to be able to talk or speak for the next few months. And so God, by design, is pulling Zacharias into a realm of solitude and silence as a result of his doubting. And folks, what many commentators point out here, and I love this, is that they point out that this is actually a time of God's discipline on Zacharias, but a discipline that was very restorative in nature. In other words, this is not a punishment. This isn't like going to spiritual jail for what he did. No, it's like you would do with your child when he or she waffles or he or she errs and goes off the path you have for them. You do a corrective measure out of love for them to get them right back on the right path. It's restorative what God is doing for Zacharias here. This is something that a wonderful Bible expert writing on the Gospel of Luke some 150 years ago, a professor at Trinity College in Oxford, England, by the name of Alfred Plummer, points out, 
He says that given the fact that the angel Gabriel twice says that Zacharias will be silent, he says you shall be silent, unable to speak, combined with the fact that he says, that he says twice that this will only be for a set period of time, a few months, when he says until the day when these things take place and which shall be fulfilled in the proper time, Plummer says that this shows that this discipline was both purposeful and restorative, designed to draw Zacharias into a mode of silence and solitude where he might commune with God in a faith-filled way once again. In fact, I love how Plummer says it so simply. Listen to what he says. He says, Zacharias's wrong request is granted in a way which at once is a judgment and also a blessing. A judgment as well as a blessing. It's a discipline that's restorative in nature. Please don't miss this. God is drawing Zacharias to silence and reflection in order to restore and bolster his faith. And so the point is simply this, and this is our second and final point this morning, and that is that God is bent on restoring those who doubt back to faith. He loves you. He loves you so much that when you're that one wandering sheep wandering down the path of doubt, his main agenda is restoring you back to faith. And folks, this is exactly what's going on here in our story. Zacharias doubted. He doubted big time. As we've seen, when people are doubting, they're not trusting. So how can God, who is bent on bringing erring sheep back into the fold, get a doubting Zacharias to focus and trust once again? Don't miss this. By shutting him up in his presence and in the silence commune with him as only God could do. And by the way, there's great biblical precedent for this. How did God speak to Elijah after his big battle with the prophets of Baal? He spoke to him in the silence of that gentle breeze. Remember that? How did David hear God? David said he heard God in that still, small voice. Remember that? When did Jesus have his most intimate communion with the Father? It was when he stole away to quiet and solitude-like places, right? I mean, why do you think we call them quiet times today? Because the great spiritual writers over the years, I mean, the ones that really knew God, know that it's through stealing away to quiet and silent places where the bustle of the congregation, the bustle of the, the community out there, all that Christian music you listen to, the TV, all that other stuff is turned off, and it's just you and God. It's you and God in the silence. And what we learn from this is that sometimes we are closest to God in the stillness and the silence. It's a truism for our spiritual lives. Uh, most of you might remember the eruption of Mount St. Helens in May of 1980. Remember that? I mean, it, it literally rocked this part of the country, literally. And it was an explosion that was the likes of a nuclear bomb that was heard up to 600 miles away and in the end killed 57 people. And yet, fascinating, there was a group of people who were closest to the blast, just a mile or two from the mountain, living there, who when rescued, all claimed, every one of them, that they never heard the blast. That they saw it erupting right before them, and yet they heard nothing at all. And, and scientists actually had an explanation for this. They call it the zone of silence. And what they explained is that with an eruption the likes of Mount St. Helen, there was such an incredible thrust upward, I mean with an explosive power almost never seen, that all the sound waves went up as well, and then they would go into the atmosphere where they would bounce back to Earth several times, but only in intervals outward and away. 
And so looking at this picture, picture the sound waves going up into the atmosphere and then bouncing off the atmosphere back down to earth, but because it's an interval that's upward and outward, the people closest to the mountain never even heard the sound waves. I mean, talk about a law of physics. That's incredible. And so for those who were closest to the mountain, the sounds never reached them. All they heard was silence. And so think about that principle. Sometimes in life, silence can mean that you're actually closest to something. Talk about ironic. Silence can sometimes mean you're closest to something. And that's exactly what was true for Zacharias. That God was bringing him into a mode of silence to draw him closer to himself. That in that silence and solitude, God was going to commune with him. And folks, when you read this story, the rest of it, you can read it on your own, Zacharias surely saw this as well. Because when he finally does speak some three or four months later, eight days after John's birth, he gives one of the most faith-filled, stirring, spirit-led prophecies in all of Scripture. I mean, he's not the same guy. I mean, you read about this doubting Zacharias now, and then God out of his love says, I'm calling you in a realm of silence. And then the guy that emerges from it is trusting God with everything in him. He's like, yes, I get the message. God, thank you for leading me into that realm of silence so that I might know you and commune you. Thank you for your love and your grace, which knows no bounds. And then he went on to see John and Jesus come on the scene, and that changed everything. Folks, God has been on restoring those of us who doubt back to our faith, and he's going to use any means necessary to do it. And so here's the deal. If today you relate to Zacharias at all, and I know that I do, take heart. Because even godly people struggle big time with doubt sometimes. But realize as well that your Heavenly Father cares deeply for you in your life, and He is bent on restoring you when you doubt. He's going to steal you away to quiet places, sometimes even against your will, places close to the blast of His grace where your faith can take root once again. He's that good to you. He loves you that much. So one last story that illustrates how this works for me. A couple of months ago when I was preparing for the latter part of our Peter series, I, I went for a week away to a study place uh, up in Payson, borrowed somebody's cottage up there and just got away for a week to study. And uh, the guy told me that his cottage was on a dirt road, and so I didn't want to take my car because I didn't want to get it dirty, so I took my kid's car, all right? This is just a good thing to do. So um, my kids, I bought them when I moved here, an 11-year-old Jeep Cherokee, you know, kind of an older car, and I don't care what they do to it, that type of thing. And, and yet the guy that I bought it from, I mean, just like meticulously took care of this car. Do you know the type? I mean, he bought it when it was brand new, garage kept it. I mean, it was one of these very anal retentive type when it comes to their cars. And uh, I know some of you are going like this to your spouse right now, but, but that's the kind of guy this was. And by the way, that's the kind of guy you want to buy a car off of, right? Like, you know, buy it of somebody who kept it really well, and then you destroy it for the next few years. And that's what we did for my kids. And so I'm driving this Jeep Cherokee up there, and when I bought the car, I noticed that on the rearview mirrors, the day I picked it up, there were these little mirrors attached to it that had like been glued there, these little round one-inch mirrors. And I'd never seen those before, so I said to the guy, I said, well, what, what, what's that about? He said, oh, that's a great invention. I bought it for a buck ninety-nine at AutoZone. He said, what those are, those are special mirrors that allow you to see if something's in your blind spot. So instead of driving down the road on the freeway and wanting to get in the left lane where you always have to turn your head, right? We do that, we're taught that, that because you got that blind spot, so you have to turn your head to see if there's another car there. Which, by the way, real quickly, some of you don't do that and you drive me crazy because I'm in your blind spot and I'm doing it on purpose because I like to have fun on the freeway and I'm in your blind spot 
And all of a sudden, you don't turn your head, and what do you do? You cut guys like me off, and you cause pastors to sin. So anyways, um, <laughs> yeah, you do. And, uh, and so anyways, he, uh, <laughs> he, he's, in, he's, in the, he's, in, he's telling me that this will make it so that you can see all the cars in the blind spot. I thought, that's kind of cool. So I'm driving up to Payson in my kid's car. I don't drive that car that much, but I thought, I'm going to test this thing out. So I'm going the speed limit, which I always do, in the right lane there. And, uh, yeah, okay, it's not true. And I'm going to go on the speed limit. And, and I allow a car to go by me. And as this car's going by me, I'm looking in the main mirror. And sure enough, it gets to that point where the blind spot hits, right? Where I can't see the car anymore, but I can't see him out of my peripheral vision either. But then I look at that little mirror, and sure enough, I can see the car. I thought, what a great little invention. And I, and I could see it come all the way up to me until I could see it out of my peripheral vision. I thought, I don't need to turn my head anymore. What a great little invention. So about 10 miles later, I'm driving down, and I'm coming up on a guy who obviously was going way under the speed limit, so I needed to go around him into the left lane there. And, and I look in my rearview mirror, and I don't see any car, and then I look at the little mirror, and I still don't see a car. And you know what I did? I turned my head. I turned my head right away. And, 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 and I turned it to see if there was another car there. And I thought as I did that, I thought, you didn't need to do that. I mean, why'd you turn your head? You know that, that, that there's no car there. The little mirror told you that. But I just did it by reflex, right? So then about 10 miles later, I'm in the right-hand lane again. And this time a car's coming up on me. I mean, it had to be a Christian. It was going like 80 miles an hour or something like that. So this car's coming up on me. And, uh, and, and I very much disciplined myself. I said, look in the mirror, look in the little mirror. And, uh, and I saw him pass me. And then I thought, I don't know if there's another car there or not. So I looked in the mirror, looked in the little mirror, didn't see anything. And I thought, I don't trust it. I don't trust it. For 20 years, I've been turning my head. I'm turning my head, and I turned my head to look. And then I passed him. And for the whole rest of my trip, I kept turning my head. Why? Because for 20 years, I've been not trusting some $1.99 mirror from the auto zone. But I thought, I I'm just going to continue the practice I do. And then this thought hit me. I kid you not. I thought, I wonder how many times I do that to God. I wonder how many times God has told me, don't look back, trust me, they got the mirror of his word right here telling me everything that I need to know, and what do I still do? I still look back. Can you relate to that? I still turn my head. We have a group of people today, I mean a lot of Christians, who, who give lip service to believing God's word, and yet they're constantly turning their head. They're constantly looking back to cover their tracks. And God tells us, look forward. In Philippians 3, it says, putting behind you the things from the past, looking forward, trusting him, as Tim told us about earlier trusting him in his word. And every time I now get in my kid's Jeep, I think of that. I think about how God is calling me each moment of each day to take that sure knowledge of the mirror of his word and to trust him and move forward. As we're going to see the next week, that's what the Marys of this world are made of. So let's be Marys as we move forward. Let's be men and women who trust him and realize the true meaning of his son coming into this world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, over and over again in the scriptures, it's a theme we can't escape, you call us to what we label here at Scottsdale Bible an unwavering faith, that the kind of faith that moves forward despite difficult times, despite obstacles, despite emotions that we might feel. We trust you anyways. And so God, if I don't miss my guess, there are some of us here this morning that are battling that rock and hard place between knowledge and trust. And oh Lord, we're so tempted to doubt. Maybe we already have. And I thank you, God, that in your grace, when we doubt, you call us to restorative places, 
You call us away to some silence, some area of discipline where it's just you and I. It's just you communing with your child. And so, God, I pray that out of that environment uh, of communion with you, uh, no matter what it might be for each of us, that, God, you would restore us to faith and that you'd help us to be the kind of men and women that aren't constantly turning our neck, but the kind that look forward and trust the mirror of your word. Thank you for giving that to us, Lord. We know you are good. We know you are holy. We know that you are faithful in all you do, and we follow you. In Jesus' holy name, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.